G'day everyone, and welcome to My Union Road in ABA. This is a podcast to chronicle the progress towards a new enterprise bargaining agreement at Monash University and is brought to you by members of the Monash branch of the NTEU. We're here to take the old agreement and hashtag change it. And unlike our namesake, my dad wrote a porno, do everything we can to avoid being fucked in the process. Those involved with the podcast would like to acknowledge that it is being recorded on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nations, on whose lands we live, teach, and work. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians and elders, past and present, and to the continuation of the cultural, spiritual, and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. This week, we're bringing you a special bonus episode. It was originally going to be the second half to the episode that we had last week about our casual conversion and job security clause with Scott Robinson, but the discussion went a bit long and it was too good and full of too many useful and insightful points from our guest to chop it down to fit into the normal length of an episode. Our guest was Gavin from Western Sydney University, and as we noted both in the last episode and in this one, their conversion clause was the basis for our own. So being able to talk with him about what inspired theirs and how they were able to achieve it was a really great opportunity. Just before we get into that chat, though, there is another important thing that I want to just quickly update you all on. You may have seen in the bargaining notes published by the university from the meeting on the 29th that the university has brought the continued participation of Scott, a casual bargaining representative who you heard last episode, into question. The problem, in big old scare quotes, because it's something that is very much a problem of their own making, is that Scott, like most casuals, effectively ceased working for the university at the start of this month when his casual contract ran out. When our bargaining team raised the issue in the meeting on the 29th, the HR goons, uh, I mean, the university's consultants and representatives, refused to continue to pay Scott for his participation in the bargaining team, citing what they called difficulties. There are no difficulties. Every semester, casual academics are slapped in the face with petty, disrespectful and dehumanizing reminders of how little the university values our contributions. As if it wasn't bad enough that we have to reapply for our jobs every semester, we also get cut off from a whole raft of university services that ongoing staff retain full access to, like our email accounts. It was 1am on October 31st when I got the email telling me that my IT access was going to be cut off on December 1st. This is all in spite of there being a clause in the EBA, you know, the one that expired 160 days ago, that specifically states that the university will, and I quote, provide teaching associate staff with library cards, out-of-hours access, email accounts, network and internet access, and inclusion in the university's telephone and web directory on an equivalent basis as other academic staff, including during non-teaching periods over the calendar year end quote. And it's not an issue of money, God no. With their $416 million operating surplus in 2021, the amount that they are giving Scott is a drop in the ocean. Our 3k a day university chancellor gets the equivalent of what they are paying Scott in time release every 90 minutes. It's yet another example of the university not engaging in this process in good faith, and another example of how disrespectful they are towards their employees. The very people that make the university what it is. Anyway, hopefully the university does the right thing and stops playing games. Here's our chat with Gavin. In our interview with Scott, we got a bit of a lay of the land about our casual conversion clause. The Monash clause was actually heavily influenced by a clause that is just about to be agreed upon by Western Sydney University. So we thought it would be a good idea to hear how that process went 
from union members and organisers at Western Sydney. They're a bit further along in the negotiations than we are, so it gives us a really good opportunity to see how we can fight and how we can win. And so we've got Gavin here with us today from Western Sydney. Thanks for coming to speak to us. Um, Just by way of a beginning for the discussion, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your time in higher ed? Um, You start off as a casual academic, I think, and now you're in a different role. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I've uh, spent most of my adult life at Western Sydney. I was a student, undergraduate, did my PhD. I was a sessional tutor there for five years uh, up until the end of 2017, and I've been a professional staff member uh, since the beginning of 2018. So uh, I've been heavily involved in uh, many facets of uh, university life at Western Sydney. Um, but um, yeah, I, in terms of my employment history, I started as a casual. That's how I got involved in the union. Uh, and uh, that's how I'm still uh, involved in the, uh, the fight for casual uh, employment rights. Cool. Thanks for coming today, Gavin. Can you talk us through a bit about the clause that uh, Western Sydney put to management around decasualization? What does the clause aim to do and what will it look like in practice? Sure, those are really good questions. Um, so this uh, clause actually has a, a fairly long gestation period um, and it, did, it does kind of stem from work that um, has begun, that begun at Western Sydney quite a long time ago. We've had conversion-like clauses you know, you've got the commitment to 30 conversions over the life of an agreement, which is just not a lot, but there's always something in there in terms of, of trying to uplift your sessional stuff. So we've had those, the roots of that have been in our agreements for a, a while. Um, but I think that the strength of, of this agreement and, and why it's orders of magnitude larger than anything we've ever had is in part because of uh, on the back of COVID. Um, I think that our vice chancellor was willing to listen it, it, main, it was the, probably the biggest item on, on our, on our uh, log of claim. It was the biggest item that we kept returning to because it is large. It is big for us. Uh, we know that Sydney's going to probably uh, eclipse the, the, the total number. I mean, Sydney's much larger than us, but Western Sydney where the, you know, we'll, we'll lay claim to being the first there. Um, but it did fluctuate. Um, we did need to uh, do some escalation. Um, you know, we did go on, on strike. Um, I think that, that our, I, I do want to give a plug to our branch president, and uh, David Birchall, uh, a wily and shrewd operator. Um, you know, this is his fourth round of bargaining. So, you know, David was probably the best man to be in this, but he, he knew how this thing works. Uh, so definitely a shout out to the branch president. All right, good. Um, and are there any sort of mechanisms or safeguards in the, in the clause to make sure that the university follows through with, with their end of it? So we're talking about enforcement there. Um, so the, the number is 150 FTE. Uh, that's not 150 headcount. So some of the things that we need to, that the university wanted to insist on being in that clause was we don't want to be, uh, they don't want to be wedded to just 150 full-time positions. There's part-time. And there's some merit to that because people, different people have different sort of lifestyle needs, right? So there's a bit of flexibility there in that clause. There is a confirmation period. Um, so the university needs to be allowed to ensure the quality of its of its permanent academics. Once you become a permanent academic, it gets kind of hard to remove you, which is a good thing, I must say. But in order for us to, to keep the university on board, we, we needed to, to give them some assurances in the clause that there would, there would be that ability, first of all, to ensure that they get quality candidates, but they also need to provide the support, right? There's no point setting these people up to fail, right? And, that, and that's just... So, so there is... Uh, some stringent requirements on the university to provide that support, to, to, to go to provide that probation 
uh, that support through the probation period, through that confirmation period. But it's 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 really no not greatly different from what it would be if you were to come to be employed by the university externally. Um, it is over three years, so it's not a 150 mass conversion all at once and there's just chaos. Uh, we're going to start out with a bit of a, um, a slow boil of 30 FTE by July of next year and then 60 uh, in the following March and then another 60 in the, in the following March after that. So they can stagger it and we can develop some casual academics, and this is the thing I think is most exciting to me as a former casual academic, is there's an opportunity to uplift quite a large number of sessional academics developmentally over that time. They may not be ready by July, and I've, I've already had meetings with sessional academics asking for advice. I've been giving them advice. You may not be ready in the first tranche, but then there's a second tranche and then there's a third tranche. So there's a great opportunity for the union and for the university to actually do quite a massive uplift. Uh, in terms of the capabilities of their sessional staff, and to ensure and to meet that quality threshold, to meet that quality goal, so um, that's that's kind of where we're up, how the the program will kind of be shaped over the next three years. Yeah, that sounds great, and it sounds like it gives opportunities for the staff union and also the university management as well. So that's really good. The other thing we wanted to ask you about, Gavin, was you were in the room for bargaining when you presented your claims to management about um, casual jobs and decasualization at the university. So we're wondering, how did they respond initially? What were their talking points against the secure job clause? They weren't really talking against it. They were talking around it, I guess you would say, is they were trying to, this had become a high profile item and you couldn't really, oh no, we're not, couldn't rejected out of hand right we like that wasn't that wasn't their position it was about well how do we actually make this work for us and part of that was you know trying to at least rhetorically tie it well money's got to come from somewhere um you know seven, it's seven million dollars i mean I, i'm not a numbers man so let me my phd is in philosophy and poetry so numbers are just not my thing so the numbers were more their io and and our um our branch president they knew they kind of knew what they were talking about um but it was you know, at a certain point, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, they did um, drop the number. So it went from 150 to I think, I think 125. It fluctuated. They were kind of trying to shift the margins around. Um, that, of course, didn't go down very well. And that was one of the things that I think precipitated some action from us. Um, David Birchall is very good at, at writing communications. He's, he's gotten very good at that. And that's actually a, was a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, was the way we were able to communicate not just to our members but to management via those communications as well to sort of signal to them uh, the displeasure and, and to you know demonstrate that we weren't happy. The VC kind of was responsive. We were able to get him and make him responsive to the mood of the membership. And that's kind of how that went. It was a bit of a, a tussle at the table at times, um, but the experience of our, of our branch president um, uh, the other members of the bargaining table and the IO, they maintain quite strong discipline. And I think that's definitely a really important message is that the, the team was disciplined um, and uh, that really allowed us to sort of stay on, stay together on our side of the table so that the, the communication and the messaging was, was always clear. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think one thing that I, I think is interesting to think about is like what the division was in terms of you being able to be successful 
in putting that claim. Um, how much of the success do you think is down to what happened in the actual bargaining meetings and in the room versus what was going on outside? Um, and can you said you took industrial action and, and stru- struck over the issue. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that as well? So, yes, we did, we did take a strike. It was a half-day strike. Um, you've got to put this into a bit of context. We've got six campuses. Um, so we've got to be quite... Um, again, shrewd about how, how and when and over what we strike. Um, we, we did, uh, our strike took place on the campus where our chancellery is, you know, in the hope that the VC would be up on the, the third or fourth floor and would hear us. The, uh, the senior DVC was there and she did hear us and uh, we at least made our, our presentation. The chancellor was also there. I bumped into him quite by accident out the side where we are getting uh, the barbecue. Um, he was sort of wandering around um, just... I don't know what the Chancellor does exactly, but he was there. He's a nice man. It was actually quite a, a sophisticated mix of, of things. Um, we have to take that uh, distributed nature of our campuses into account. We can't have 500 people all on the one campus striking and making noise that way. But that's a, a necessary tool in our arsenal. Um, communications, um, not just sort of emails to staff, which you know is obviously going to get circulated to the VC eventually. Um, but also using other mechanisms in the popular press as well, being able to sort of communicate what's going on so that, again, the management doesn't control the comms channel uh, and that the alternative message was there, that our perspective, our, what, what we were trying to achieve was there. Um, because it was all done on Zoom, we also were able to leverage video recordings. Um, there are quite a number of video recordings of us as a bargaining team immediately after the bargaining, uh, the, the day of bargaining, um, summarising the events. So really quickly trying to turn over the messaging um, to our, our members because the university tried that tactic at the last round of bargaining. They you know, had lovely video production. The, the DVCA was the lead negotiator, so she was on screen. And, uh, but we were able to um, use what we had, use the tools that we had and, and uh, communicate to our staff so that there was a consistent presence uh, and that we had control of the messaging. So it was a mix of things. It was not a single thing that kind of pushed him over the edge. Again, it, it, I think it came down to the strategies and the tactics from the branch president who you know, leveraged his experience quite heavily and was able to make the right decisions and escalate at the right time. Yeah, that's great to hear. And it's great to hear that your VC was responsive as well. We're really hoping the same thing's going to happen at Monash. Uh, so fingers crossed on that one. And that also gives us some really good insight onto what sort of tactics we can use and how we can use, you know, the structure of Monash to our advantage as well. So that's really great. Uh, The other thing we wanted to ask you, Gavin, is uh, about job security and casualisation. You know, with the media and all that kind of stuff, they have become, you know, kind of buzzwords that get thrown around a lot. But can you tell us or give us a sense of what this new clause will actually mean for people's lives, being a former casual academic yourself? And that's a really great question, and that I think is going to be really important in any campaign that you run around decasualization, uh, because it can be quite transformative. Um, the reason why I, I mean I'm a professional I'm I'm employed full time as a professional staff member for the last four years. I don't need to be in this space, but I've stayed in this space because it's uh, a passion of mine, and I, I know what sessional staff bring to the table. I would have liked somebody like me at the table when I was a sessional academic as well. And that's one, of, and again, I guess this also goes partly goes to the previous question. One of the reasons I was at the table was I was a sessional academic and I have the narrative and I have the stories. 
And that's actually really powerful. You need to tell the stories of sessional academics uh, to show what it means, what the current state of affairs means. It means precarious employment. It means mental health issues. I had a fantastic drinking problem when I was a sessional academic early on because it's stressful. Not the job itself. I love teaching and I was good at it. But the thing that really gets to you and grinds you down is that precariousness. I'm only employed for five months and then I'm unemployed and then I'm employed again for five months. And I did that for five years. I know people who have done it for 10 years, who have done it for 15 years. Someone is going on 20 years. Now, every casual is different. Some people have other jobs, right? And there's a good reason why you want to be a casual because you've got other things going on. But I was just casual. That was it. Um, but it is going to mean a lot to a lot of people. Um, and it's going to have a beneficial effect for students. This casual, and this is probably the same at your university, the casuals are the face of the university to the students because most of your tutors are probably casual. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your primary point of contact is a casual academic who may not be employed next year. You want, you want, oh, I want to be in your, I'd love, what are you teaching next semester? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not even sure I'll be here next year. Um, and those are conversations I've had and, and lots of sessions will have had. They form attachments with students. Students like and build a rapport with academics. Um, but it also had beneficial effects for the permanent academics as well. There's a lot of energy amongst the permanent academics because they've all got a cohort of two, three, four, five sessional staff that they have employed for years. They are mentors to these people. They are coaches to these people. And they will want to get involved. Uh, and they want to see their protégés, let's call them, be successful. So there's a lot of, of benefit here for the students, for the culture of the university, and most importantly, for those academics, those sessional academics that are successful. And it will be life-changing. But it's the stories you've got to tell. Yeah, so I'm, Kate and I are both casuals at Monash and I'm sort of, um, I'm a TA, I've been, I'm coming up on 10 years of doing it and sort of reapplying for the job every semester. And so, yeah, a lot of the stuff that you, you said then, like really, really strongly um, rings true for me in, in terms of those connections that you build both with the students and also with those mentors. Like I've had um, a couple of academics that I've worked with sort of multiple times over the course of the years and you you develop those those sort of bonds with them um and so mm. yeah that's definitely um something that, I, that resonates really strongly with me strongly with me i'm interested as well um and i guess we're interested now as as well in how you feel about the campaign now so now that you're sort of coming to the point of securing that win and and having that um new cause in place how you feel looking back um, is that are there things that you would do differently are the things that you think um, in addition to the like the comms and stuff that you, you've already mentioned that you think worked particularly well I thought the ca the campaign for it was dealt with really really well in a mature in a really mature and sober-minded way by our branch president because we knew we were breaking some ground and he knew that and he understood the gravity of the situation and he understood what our constraints were as a union given our dispersed nature um, you know, we understood what technologies were available to us. We, were, we had just come off, we were just coming off two years worth of Zoom. We knew how to use Zoom, right? We knew how to use Zoom. <laughs> Very important tool to use. Um, so he, he understood all of that. Um, he recognised, and so did, I gotta, you know, we've got to give, tip my hat to, to the VC. This is something that he wanted. You know, he needed to, to struggle and to negotiate and to push and pull, and he did elevate it to, a, I think, an appropriate level where 
the, the two IC of the university, the senior DVC, uh, was involved trying to really kind of hammer out some of the, the harder details of this, particularly around, you know, how many sessionals do we actually have? What's, what will the, the impact actually be of 150 FTE? Um, what the reduction in the, the commensurate reduction in casual work would actually be? That's in the clause as well as a percentage goal there. In terms of, of what I do, would do differently, I don't think, I think it was, it was handled exceptionally well in uncharted territory. Um, and we had somebody in our branch president who had more than a decade of experience negotiating and kind of knew how to step it up, you know, one rung at a time. We didn't get a rush of blood to the head or, or white line fever. I don't know if that's a, a saying down in Victoria. The try line is just there and you're just trying to push and you push too hard and then you lose control of everything and you've fumbled it. Um, he understood the stakes uh, and he understood how to slowly turn up the boiler. So I wouldn't, like, I, I'm not in a position to say what would have been done better. I think we did it exceptionally well. Um, and it was the discipline and it was the communications and it was the connection back to the members. I can't tell you how many times we had members meetings and numerous votes. We had an indicative vote before we went to an endorsement vote. The vote, the, the all staff vote is live now. I voted this morning. So the vote is actually going on as we are recording this. Congratulations. <laughs> there, and actually the head of HR, I think, actually put this best, right? It is a process that needs to be owned by everyone. And I, and I agree with that. It's a, it's a community building exercise for the university in general. Uh, those permanent academics, those sessional academics, uh, the students, even the professional staff, um, there's an opportunity to seize that energy and to engage in some cultural transformation at the university. And I think that's the collateral benefit that isn't, it's hard to quantify at this point. We can quantify 150 FTE, having an impact on, cult, on, the, on the academic culture of the place is a harder thing to do, but it's something that I think will come with this process. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, Western Sydney Uni is really breaking ground in this, as you said. Um, and it's going to hopefully have this positive impact across the industry as well and not just at Western Sydney. So, you know, um, we all congratulate and thank you all for putting in this hard work um, and hopefully it inspires our VC as well to, you know, make good on her talk about wanting to increase secure jobs. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yep. Um, that's kind of one of the hopes that we're going to get out of this. Yep, fingers crossed on that one. Um, the other thing we wanted to ask is what message do you have for people listening who might be sceptical at our chances of not only winning but enforcing something like this? I think there's, there's I understand the scepticism. If you've been in this sector a long time, you've seen it change, right? You've seen it change and you look at it and you go, you know, it, there's a risk of the Americanization of the system of, oh, it's going down to, you know, to degree mills. You know, I, I get it and I understand that and I deal with that in conversation a lot as well. Um, I have to tell them, well, here's why I'm involved in the union. Here's what I believe the university should be and, and is. The, the word university can be translated as corporation or it can be, can be translated as community. Right? It's a community of masters and scholars, of teachers and students. And I always emphasise that community piece because we are concerned about the corporatization of higher education. Absolutely. But we can win. I think now is a, is a really important time. I think the timing is right. Um, it's not about the buildings or about 
the technologies. We love a good technology. Technological, digital transformation is the thing. It's about human transformation. And it's the humans that are, that are the ones that do the real transforming. It, should be, it needs to be a human-centered approach. And that's why the narratives around sessional academics work so well. Tell the stories of the humans that are actually in the classroom with other humans, the students, doing that transformative work. That's what education is supposed to be. And that might sound like naively optimistic. I'm quite deliberately naive about these things. I want the university to be that community and to be that place of learning for everyone, not just the students. But in terms of, you know, when you're thinking about, well, okay, we, we can win, but how? We can see that we can do it, but how do we do it? And a lot of it has to do, I think, with being human-centered and coming back to the fact that these are human beings, uh, their stories matter, but it's also about being disciplined about it as well. Um, and I think that was probably the most important underlying feature of the union's approach, our branch's approach, was the disciplined nature of our team, both at the table, outside of the table, in terms of the actions that we took and the way that we escalated them appropriately and the communications that we were able to put out to um, the rest of our, to our members, but also, you know, that communication goes to other people, right? It goes to the VC, it goes to non-members, it goes to everyone. So you can do it. Now is the time to do it. You've got to be disciplined and, and focused on achieving a goal that can be enforced and defended. And that means being uh, intelligent and, and practical. Um, you're aiming for a goal. We're not going to transform the university in one agreement, um, but you know we'll get 150. Sydney Uni could get 300 FTE. Like they're still negotiating, but they're a bigger university, a bigger branch. They could, where we were tapping at the wall with a hammer, looking for all the weak spots, they could come in with a sledgehammer and blow a couple of holes in it. And if we get to that level of you know 150, 200, 150, that's going to be transformative across the sector, and it's going to start to lay the groundwork. Uh, for the next round of agreements. There's always a next round. And I think that that's, that's how I would communicate it to people who are sceptical. But I understand the scepticism. I absolutely do. The last thing I would mention is, to, to particularly if you're an, a permanent academic or if you're a session academic, is to reach out to your network and to communicate with your colleagues and to learn about what's going on in this process to get involved because re it isn't entirely one at the table. It requires a bunch of different activities at the table, outside the table, uh, at, the sh at a strike, in emails and in communications. So you've got to get involved. And that's to the long-term benefit of you as, a, as, a, as an academic. And it's really only through that strength of, of unity that we actually get these kinds of outcomes. Well, thank you, Gavin, for coming to speak to us today and, and for all the hard work that you and Western Sydney University have done in, in sort of blazing the trail for us to all sort of follow along with and hope to live up to the to the example that you've all set. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's probably a good point for us to say, if anybody uh, listening has any questions, you can shoot us an email at myunionroadineba at gmail.com and we'll get one of our members to answer them on the podcast. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kate, Danny, Adam, Bernard, and Pod Daddy Sophio for all the work they've put into this. And we'll catch you next time. I'm in the man's world.